This is Spacetime Series 26, Episode 1, for broadcast on the 2nd of January 2023. Coming up on Spacetime, how spiral galaxies lose their arms, the asteroid Raigu sheds new light on the solar system's history, and Solar Orbiter solves one of the Sun's great magnetic mysteries. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. A new study suggests that spiral galaxies, like our own Milky Way galaxy for example, tend to lose their spiral arms when they lose the molecular gas needed for star formation. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, are based on new computer simulation tools using artificial intelligence to accelerate their learning. Ever since the Hubble Tuning Fork, sometimes referred to as the Hubble Sequence, which classifies galaxy morphologies, was invented back in 1926, astronomers have been refining their understanding of galaxy evolution and morphology as technology advances. For example, by the 1970s, scientists had confirmed that lone galaxies tend to be spiral-shaped. However, those found in galaxy clusters were more likely to either be spherical and featureless, what we refer to as elliptical galaxies, or flat, lens-shaped lenticular galaxies. And the new AI computer simulations may finally have ended the decades-long debate about exactly how spiral galaxies evolve to become either ellipticals or lenticulars. The simulations are showing there's a whole bunch of different things going on when lots of galaxies get packed together. It seems the spiral arms in galaxies are really fragile, and as you get higher densities in galaxy clusters, spiral galaxies start to lose their gas. And this loss of gas causes them to drop their spiral arms, transforming them into lenticular galaxies. On the other hand, when two similar mass galaxies merge, as the Milky Way and M31 Andromeda will do in around 4 billion years' time, they'll coalesce to form a single large elliptical galaxy. To reach these findings, the study utilised the powerful Eagle simulations to analyse a group of galaxies in detail using AI algorithms to classify galaxies by their shape. The neural network-based algorithm can classify about 20,000 galaxies per minute, compressing what typically would have taken weeks into just an hour. And the results of those simulations closely match what's actually been observed in the real universe, giving researchers the confidence to use the simulation results to interpret observations of galaxy clusters. But the studies also identified several lenticular galaxies outside of the high-density regions where they're expected to be found. And here the modelling suggested they were also created by the merging of two separate galaxies. One of the study's authors, Kenji Becky, from the University of Western Australia node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, says there's been lots of suggestions over time, but this is the first work to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in a single package. So in this work, we try to identify a galaxy in the supercomputer simulation. So in this simulation, we produce uh, many thousands of galaxies and then try to classify galaxies into Elliptical galaxies and spiral galaxies and lenticular galaxies. So lenticular galaxies are very interesting objects because they don't have any spiral arms. And this galaxy 
can be found in cluster environment or group environment. And on the other hand, spiral galaxy can be found uh, mostly in the field environment where the density of galaxy is very, very low. So the key question of the Hubble sequence is why the lenticular galaxy can be found mostly in the group or cluster environment. And this paper discussed this origin. And what conclusions yeah. did the uh, simulation show? Yeah, so simulations show for the very first time that lenticular galaxy can be formed through gas stripping or galaxy merging in a group or in cluster environment. So you've got these spiral galaxies. The spirals are very delicate, aren't they? And, and lots of gas yes, there. Yes, yes. That's when new stars yeah. are being formed. These galaxies, for some reason, are losing their spiral arms and becoming lenticular. So spiral can keep their spiral arms due to star formation within the gas. So spiral arms are composed mostly of young stars. If the spiral galaxy lose their gas, they can no longer form stars, so spiral arm gradually disappear. So spiral galaxy can be transformed into lenticular galaxy without any spiral arm. So gas is very important for the maintenance of spiral arm in galaxy. So this is a kind of a basic physics. So in a cluster environment, spiral galaxy can lose their gas by stripping, uh, what we call lamp pressure stripping. So lamp pressure stripping is caused by interaction between cold gas within the disk and hot gas in the clusters. So when the gas galaxy can lose gas, they can also lose their spiral. So there's got to be a, a galaxy cluster nearby, and, yes. and that's drawing the, the cold gas from within the galaxy itself. Yes, yes, yes. So the key physical process is a stripping of cold gas. And cold gas can form stars. So if the star formation cannot continue, spiral actually can lose their uh, spiral arm. I guess the other side of the uh, the Hubble fork, in this case, yeah. would be elliptical galaxies. And I take it that's yeah. pretty well understood now. It's merging of spiral galaxies. That causes yeah. them to convert into elliptical galaxies. What we're going to become yeah. in 5 billion years from now? Yeah. So, okay. Galaxy matter can create a different type of galaxies. If the mass ratio of two galaxies is larger than 0.3, the two spiral galaxies can be transformed into the elliptical galaxy. But the mass ratio of the two galaxies is very small, like 0.1. These two galaxies can become the s galaxy. So the first one is major merger. Second one is minor merger. So major merger can create elliptical galaxy, but minor merger can create and this minor merger can happen in a field of a small group of galaxies. So that's the transformation process from spiral into S0 in a small group or field environment. So there are two physical mechanisms of S0 formation. One is gas stripping in a cluster. The other is minor merger in a field or small groups. So there are two ways of uh, uh, losing spiral arms. One is gas stripping, the other is minor merger. And there is a, a very important distinction between minor and major mergers in galaxy transformation. So when we see things like the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy being slowly stripped yeah. into the Milky Way, is that considered yeah. a minor merger? Uh, it's a mini merger. It's not, 
that's the mass ratio of the calcium throughout the Milky Way is too small, too small. less than 0.1. So it, such matter cannot damage the galactic disk. Okay. So, yeah, yeah it's too small, yeah. It's like minimizer. When you put this artificial intelligence program together, yeah. were you yeah. looking at a particular epoch of the universe? I mean, today or, or 10 billion yes, years ago? We can apply this uh, AI to any relative. So for this paper, we use AI to classify galaxy for the relative zero, the present universe. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the innovations of this paper because our AI can classify galaxy, 1,000 galaxies within one second. That's a huge innovation. So, so far, astronomer has to spend one minute or two minutes per galaxy to classify a galaxy, but for this AI, it takes only one second for 1,000 galaxies. That's, <laughs> and this is the most innovative part of this paper. That's astronomer Kenji Becky from the University of Western Australia, node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. And this is Space Time. Still to come, the asteroid Ryugu sheds new light on the solar system's history, and Solar Orbiter solves one of the Sun's great magnetic mysteries. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Scientists studying samples returned to Earth from the asteroid Ryugu have found that it's composed of some of the first solid material in our solar system. The material is known as Ivuna-type carbonaceous chondrites, and it's named after the Ivuna meteorite which landed near Ivuna in Tanzania back on December 16, 1938. Ivuna is one of only nine known meteorites classified as CI1 carbonaceous chondrites. And these all have compositions very similar to that of the Sun, meaning they're essentially unaltered since they were formed about the same time as the solar system itself, some 4.6 billion years ago. Put simply, it means they're some of the most chemically primitive meteorites known. The designation CI1 means that Ivuna underwent a high degree of chemical change due to the presence of water. This alteration took place in the parent body of the meteorite at low temperatures, probably around 20 to 50 degrees Celsius in a water-rich environment. Now, by contrast, chondrites experience thermal metamorphism under dry conditions, usually at temperatures between 600 and 900 degrees Celsius. The findings reported in the journal Nature Astronomy show that nearly two years after Japan's Hayabusa 2 mission returned samples of the asteroid Ryugu to Earth, scientists are continuing to reveal valuable new information about the early history of the solar system. In this particular study, scientists were looking at the isotopic composition of zinc and copper within Ryugu. It was these isotopic signatures that showed that Ryugu's composition was close to Ivuna-like carbonaceous chondrites. By the way, Ryugu-like material from the outer solar system accounts for about 5-6% to of the Earth's mass, so we're finding out not just about the solar system itself, but also about our own planet. Meteorites found on Earth give scientists access to samples representing the first moments of the solar system. However, the return to Earth in December 2020 of the Japanese Space Agency's Hayabusa 2 mission provided much more than that. It gave scientists 5 grams of pristine Ryugu fragments, 
pieces of another world which have been completely unaltered since their arrival and stay on Earth. The first analysis showed that some isotopic signatures, including titanium and chromium, overlap with other groups of carbonaceous chondrites. So the details of the link between Ryugu and Avuna-like carbonaceous chondrites wasn't fully understood. Zinc and copper are two moderately volatile elements, and they're key to studying the processes of accretion of volatiles during the formation of terrestrial planets. The different groups of carbonaceous chondrites show distinct copper and zinc isotopic compositions, with ivernalite carbonaceous chondrites being more enriched in volatile elements. So by carrying out the additional analysis of the copper and zinc isotopic compositions of Ryugu, scientists wound up with access to a crucial tool for studying the origin of the asteroid. They found that the isotopic ratios of copper and zinc in the samples of Ryugu were identical to carbonaceous chondrites, but different from all other types of meteorites. By finally confirming the similarity between Ryugu and carbonaceous chondrites, the study establishes that these primitive samples of this asteroid represent the best estimate for the solar composition to date for copper and zinc. The 900-metre-wide asteroid Ryugu is classified both as a near- or near-Earth object and as a potentially hazardous asteroid of the Apollo group of asteroids whose orbit takes them inside Earth's orbit around the Sun for at least part of their journey. And that makes them pieces of space rock worth studying. This is space-time. Still to come, Solar Orbiter solves one of the Sun's great mysteries, and later in the science report, researchers use artificial human embryos to study how the human spine is created. All that and more still to come on Space Time. New data obtained by the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter spacecraft has found compelling new clues about the origins of one of the Sun's great magnetic mysteries known as magnetic switchbacks and how their formation accelerates the solar wind, the stream of charged particles flowing out from the Sun which encompass and bathe the Earth. Solar switchbacks are weird. They're a sudden and large deflection of the solar wind's magnetic field. The new observations by Solar Orbiter provide scientists with a first full view of the structure, confirming the hypothesis that it has an S-shaped character. But it doesn't stop there. The findings also showed that these rapidly changing magnetic fields have their origins near the Sun's surface. While a number of spacecraft have flown through these puzzling regions before, in-situ data has only previously ever been measured at a single point in time. Consequently, the structure and shape of the switchbacks had to be inferred from plasma and magnetic field measurements taken at just one point. When the German and American Helios 1 and 2 spacecraft flew close to the Sun back in the mid-1970s, both probes recorded sudden reversals of the Sun's magnetic field. These mysterious reversals were always abrupt and always temporary, lasting from just a few seconds to a number of hours before the magnetic field switched back to their original direction. These magnetic structures were also probed at much larger distances from the Sun by NASA's Ulysses spacecraft in the late 1990s. But instead of a third of Earth's orbital radius from the Sun, where the Helios missions made their closest pass, Ulysses operated mostly beyond Earth's orbit. The amount of data available, however, has risen dramatically with the arrival of NASA's Parker Solar Probe in 2018. 
Parkes showed that sudden magnetic field reversals were far more numerous close to the Sun, and that led to suggestions that they were being caused by S-shaped kinks in the magnetic field itself. And it was this puzzling, though still hypothetical, behaviour which earned the phenomenon the name switchbacks. A number of ideas were then proposed to try and explain how they formed. Early last year, Solar Orbiter was just a day away from its close pass of the Sun, well within the orbit of the planet Mercury, and it was imaging the Sun's outer atmosphere known as the corona. The particles in the corona are electrically charged, and they follow the Sun's magnetic field lines out into space. As Solar Orbiter was imaging the corona, it recorded a distorted S-shaped link in the coronal plasma, looking suspiciously like a possible solar switchback. Later comparisons of visible light and extreme ultraviolet images of the event confirm this hypothesis. Now, usually active regions are associated with sunspots and magnetic activity. And further analysis showed the speed of the plasma above this region was actually very slow, as would be expected from an active region that's yet to release stored energy. The observations of the plasma resembled a generating mechanism for the switchbacks, an idea first proposed by Gary Zank from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. The hypothesis was looking at the way different magnetic regions near the Sun's surface interact with each other. Close to the Sun, especially above active regions, there are closed and open magnetic field lines. The closed lines are loops of magnetism which arch up into the solar atmosphere before curving around and disappearing back deep into the Sun. Now, very little plasma can escape into space above these field lines, so the speed of the solar wind around this area tends to be really slow. But open field lines are the reverse, emanating from the Sun and ultimately connecting with the interplanetary magnetic field lines of the solar system. Think of them as magnetic highways, along which plasma can flow freely and give rise to very fast solar wind. The switchbacks seem to occur where there's an interaction between the region of open field lines and a region of closed lines. It seems as the field lines crowd together, they tend to reconnect into more stable configurations. Magnetic reconnection's a bit like cracking a whip as it releases lots of energy, at the same time setting up an S-shaped disturbance travelling off into space. And it's this S-shaped disturbance passing the spacecraft which is then recorded as a switchback. The key observation here was that the switchbacks could be seen emanating from above an active solar region. Late last year, Solar Orbiter made a gravity assist flyby of Venus in order to adjust its orbit around the Sun. And subsequent Venus flybys will now start raising the inclination of the spacecraft's orbit, allowing it to access higher latitudes of the Sun, heading more towards the Sun's little understood polar regions, where more mysteries are waiting to be solved. This report from ACTV. TV. Solar Orbiter will help answer fundamental questions about the Sun's activity. After some 20 years of development, six years of construction and more than a year of testing, engineers have had the challenging task of designing a mission to make detailed observations of the Sun, capture the closest ever pictures of our nearest star and the first images of the poles. The spacecraft has a number of key new technologies that have been developed just for the purpose of flying close to the Sun. We have a specific heat shield designed just for Solar Orbiter that will reach temperatures of over 500 degrees centigrade on the front side and will keep things as cool as just about 50 degrees centigrade on the back side to protect the sensitive electronics. The Sun generates a bubble of plasma enveloping the entire solar system. 
known as the heliosphere, anything within it, including Earth, is subject to a stream of charged particles called the solar wind. Violent space weather from flares and coronal mass ejections has the potential to damage satellites, disrupt communications and knock out power grids on the ground. One of the key questions the scientists have is um, how the heliosphere is actually generated and how it's accelerated. So what is, what is really um, driving the solar wind? And the second key question of the mission is understanding uh, what makes the sun change or vary over this 11-year cycle that we all know. So understanding the, uh, the magnetic properties of the sun and how these uh, change over this 11-year cycle is one of the key scientific objectives of Solar Orbiter. To measure the magnetic environment around the sun, Solar Orbiter is fitted with a suite of 10 extremely sensitive instruments. And so it can take pictures, the heat shield has peepholes through it, covered by protective doors. We're going to places where no other solar telescopes have been before. We're going to be very close to the sun to take very high resolution images of the sun, unprecedented uh, spatial resolution. And we're also going to fly over the poles of the sun, regions that are very much unknown because we don't see them very well from Earth, but they are the source of the fast solar wind and therefore are very important. Solar Orbiter will take several years using the gravity of Venus and Earth to reach its operational orbit. But once in position, the spacecraft will take measurements that complement NASA's Parker Solar Probe, which launched in 2018. We will not get as close to the sun, but we will have a vastly bigger payload complement, so more instruments with more cameras looking at the sun. So we will do science that is complementary to Solar Probe, and the two will really have a great deal of synergy. This is space time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Scientists have used artificial human embryos to study how a lump of tissue will elongate and form segments, creating a spine. A report of the journal Nature claims scientists created the embryo surrogates from pluripotent stem cells. These differentiated artificial human embryos when exposed to specific chemical signals. The authors are using these artificial human embryos to model human congenital spine diseases such as scoliosis by disrupting the organism's artificial spine's development. A British medical journal has been slammed by scientists and medical practitioners around the world after publishing a meta-analysis study which wrongly claimed that acupuncture helped relieve lower back and pelvic pain often experienced during pregnancy. Dr. Steve Novella from Science-Based Medicine criticised the analysis, saying the study clearly showed that acupuncture didn't work other than as a placebo. He says the authors of the study still tried to spin it the other way. He questioned how the authors could have reached their conclusions based on the scientific data they published. Novella says the meta-analysis was based on just 10 studies. Most of those studies weren't blind, which should have disqualified them immediately. And none of the studies were double-blinded, which is the accepted standard for scientific research. The British Medical Journal's analysis also glossed over studies with unfavourable results. Two of the studies it did include had a greater than 20% dropout rate. The people dropped out because the acupuncture wasn't working, meaning those left were skewing the results. 
Novella says the studies were showing publication bias, with the scientifically stronger, more rigorous studies which showed less support for acupuncture given less attention, while the scientifically weaker, less rigorous studies, which were more supportive of acupuncture, given far greater prominence. Importantly, the meta-analysis also failed to show which acupuncture points were being used. That's important because different acupuncture practitioners use different locations on the body because there's no agreement between practitioners about where the acupuncture points are actually meant to be, or for that matter, what each point does. None of the studies shown in the meta-analysis use the same acupuncture points. Novella says that's because they don't really work, so it doesn't matter. Now, it's worth pointing out that the organisations behind these studies in the meta-analysis were the Kuming Municipal Hospital of Traditional Chinese Medicine and the third affiliated hospital of the Yunnan University of Chinese Medicine. And the entire study was funded by the Traditional Chinese Medicine Bureau of Gudan Province. A new study has found that Australian baby boomers, those born in the 1950s and 60s, are still the most likely to use cannabis were it legal. The findings, reported in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Review, looked at the cannabis use of some 160,000 Australians aged between 18 and 79. The authors found favourable attitudes towards cannabis use have increased over time, more so in children of the 1950s and 60s than among older or younger generations. However, the study also found that children of the 90s are beginning to catch up when it comes to their willingness to try cannabis were it legal. Ouija boards have been with us for over 100 years now, becoming especially popular for teenagers in movie scripts everywhere. And of course, they also make an appearance in real life, especially around Halloween. While most see it as harmless fun, just a parlour game to while away the hours, Others swear by the board's ability to communicate with those who have passed across to the other side. But Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says what the true believers are really seeing is something called the idiomotor effect. In your youth, when you do a seance, as you do with, with your mates, you darken the room, you stick a few candles around and you... Been there, done set, that, yeah. Yeah, you, set, you often set up a homemade Ouija board, right? Where you, you write the letters on a bit of paper and you put those around the table. Really, yes, no. So it doesn't have to be the you know, upmarket, expensive wooden Ouija boards. So we're actually made a lot of them by Hasbro, which makes a lot of board games, by the way. And with a little planchette thing, a little wooden thing that you did with wheels that you put your fingers on and it moves around. So, you know, Ouija's supposed to be uh, channeling spirits who then can read out particular suggestions by going to a letter and spelling out a word or going to yes or no or, or goodbye, actually, is one of the options as well. So you've got a yes and no and then lots of letters around and that's the way you spell out a message. And lo and behold, someone's discovered that people might be manipulating this. And oh, you think, no. well, I've, <laughs> I've got to tell you, I'm the one who usually did that. Yes, didn't we all? <laughs> and you think, and then you get the argument, no, I didn't push it. Did you push it? No, I didn't push it. What they're suggesting is not even consciously pushing, it might be unconsciously pushing. And this is the suggestion that it's something called the idiomotor effect, which is brain over physics, if you like. You know, your brain subconsciously wants something to happen, so it manipulates what you do. It's often used as an explanation for how divining rods, dowsing rods, the little sort of bent stick or the bent bit of wire or something, why they move and why they cross over, etc. That if you look at people who are using those things, their hands tend to move a little bit, only a tiny bit, because these things are way off uh, centre of balance. So a tiny movement subconsciously can move divining rods, and they're saying the same thing can apply to moving this little planchette around. That's not accounting for the fact that some people are pushing it on purpose, like you or me. You know, unconsciously, people who are sincere might be moving 
down to a particular result. The trouble is, if you get a lot of people who are sincere all doing the same thing at the same time, they're probably going to get a very sort of uh, a weird result, spelling out words that don't exist. They're moving all over the place. Of course, they often move quickly, and you don't have to push very hard on these things for these things to move. And so, practical joke, idiomotor effect. Not necessarily spirits is basically what this, this article is saying, and I would agree with that. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime is also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 